and welcome to the Digital Gardening Podcast, the podcast about digital literacy and higher education. My name is Adam Maxwell. I'm one of the co-hosts, and we have a wonderful, wonderful special guest today. I'll uh, ask my co-host, Paul, to introduce himself and introduce our amazing special guest that we're exci- really excited to talk to. Yes. Hi, everyone. It's Paul Cook, uh, co-host of Digital Gardening, and I am going to geek out here for just a minute because we are uh, interviewing today someone that we have wanted to have on this podcast really since we launched this podcast, uh, uh, I guess just over a year ago, and that is Dr. Renee Hobbs of the University of Rhode Island. Uh, she is, as you probably already know, an internationally recognized authority on digital and media literacy. She's a professor of communication studies at the University of Rhode Island. She's also the founder and director of the Media Education Lab, author of 12 books on media literacy, including most recently a book, a textbook called um, Media Literacy in Action, Questioning the Media, and over 150 articles. She runs the Summer Institute for uh, Digital Literacy, which I was uh, um, spent my first year there last summer in Chicago, and that was terrific. I, I give it uh, high marks. And then last but not least, Renee is also the uh, uh, co-director of uh, a, a, a relatively new initiative called Courageous RI, which we're going to talk about today first. So uh, with, with all of that said, and without any further ado, uh, Dr. Hobbs, welcome to our humble podcast. Paul and Adam, it's such a, a pleasure to be here. And I just love the concept of digital gardening and it's exciting to see your dynamic duo uh, in action here today. So thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. So we'll jump right into it. Um, the first question we want to know is to hear a little bit about Courageous, R- uh, uh, Courageous RI, which stands for Rhode Island, um, and uh, to, to, to talk a bit about how this particular program differs from other media literacy or digital literacy programs that you've been involved with or ones that just kind of exist out there that you are aware of? How, how is this different? And how is the mission of, of Courageous RI different? The Courageous RI initiative is a violence prevention initiative. And it takes a whole of society approach to kind of addressing the increasing polarization mistrust and suspicion, false stereotypes, and hate that we are encountering in society. After the uh, events of um, January 6th, I found myself increasingly aware that um, simply focusing on critical thinking and communication skills wasn't enough, and that I needed to embrace what some people have called the socio-emotional turn in media literacy education, where we start to recognize that we're more persuaded by feeling than facts, where influencers have shifted our um, understandings about um, who to trust and what to trust, and where uh, tribal identities and feelings of belonging are so important um, because we live in a world with rising global inequality and also a great sense of uncertainty about the future. So for all of those reasons, I wanted to try to explore media literacy pedagogy 
in a way that was tuned in to help people find common ground and rebuild trust. I'm going to veer off a little bit here from this second question that we were going to ask, because I think you've already answered it. Um, but I, I want to ask something that kind of came out of that response. You, you mentioned something called the socio-emotional turn in media literacy education. Can you talk a bit more about that and specifically where that is coming from in terms of the larger conversation? Yeah. So um, I think uh, across the whole education field, and certainly during the pandemic, we became uh, aware of how um, how much um, how important. Let's just be frank: how important mental health is to learning. <laughs> right. So, if you have anxiety and depression, if you are not feeling secure in your relationships, if uh, your understanding of the future is, is foreshortened or compromised, then um, learning is going to be really hard. It's going to be really hard. And so um, when the pandemic sort of forced that realization on us and we recognized that we need to take really seriously uh, issues of students' mental health and our own mental health, actually, um, then this idea that the socio-emotional turn has some distinct components. One is creating learning environments that where we feel safe, right? Uh, another is uh, being able to um, participate in um, communities where our contributions are valued, where we feel valued and respected. Another feature of the socio-emotional turn is this idea that Listening skills are both critical and empathic, right? So yes, we're listening to critically analyze the quality of information, ideas, and evidence, but we're also listening empathically to sort of understand the point of view of the other, right? Um, and I think um, those components of a classroom community are I think we're all putting more attention and thinking about how does media literacy instructional practices, how can they support those those goals, um, which ultimately supports learning. So it sounds like in part there's an increasing awareness that in order to move the needle on some of these issues, we've got to address the whole person, not just their sort of intellectual or mental understanding of, say, mis and disinformation. So true. And, you know, and, and media literacy has long been accused of focusing primarily in the cognitive domain, right? So this is not a new critique, not right? Uh, but Courageous RI is our effort to use a whole of society approach. In the beginning, we're working with adults, right? And we're reaching, we're doing media literacy instructional practices with grownups. Uh, and then in phase two, we'll work in high school and college classrooms. And then in phase three, we'll host a student media campaign where students will make media reflecting their understanding about um, how media contributes to us feeling safe or unsafe, um, how it creates enemies or builds feelings of belonging. It should be a fun adventure, and I hope we're going to learn a lot. It sounds amazing, and I was saying earlier that I have attended every single Courageous RI event that's been offered so far, and I have been learning so much. I should note also that Courageous RI is funded by the Department of Homeland Security. 
Um, and all I can think about whenever you guys say that at, at the beginning is how the how how daunting the application packet must have been for that grant. And uh, so kudos to you for just having the temerity to actually work through that. I, I know what those federal grants can be like. You know, Paul, the hardest thing was to actually decide to apply because I had stereotypes about the Department of Homeland Security, as I sure, I'm sure you might also have. And I had a hard time wrapping my head around, did they really, would they really embrace a media literacy point of view? But I'll have to tell you, we were very warmly welcomed by the Department of Homeland Security community who said to us, we have made a lot of mistakes since 9-11, uh, uh, right? And this is, we've got a 20 year history, 20 plus year history of trying to address, address issues of violent terrorism and domestic extremism and a lot of mistakes along the way. And the very way they embraced media literacy as a promising practice and the very genuine way they told us, look, we don't know if this will work and if it doesn't work, it's okay, we're all learning. What, have you ever heard of federal agency ever say we want you to learn and we we're we know you don't have all the answers and you might this might not work it was so refreshing and it's really helped us to be a little bit well courageous in moving this project forward we're we're trying looking and seeing what works really what kind of facilitation strategies enable adults to be in rooms with people they disagree with <laughs> and have civil conversations We'll have a lot to say about that in the years ahead. Actually, if I, if I can ask a follow-up. So, you know, when we think about this, this socio-emotional turn in, in media literacy education, I, I'm I'm curious, you know, for a long time and, and you know, uh, um, uh, and certainly as a scholar and a practitioner sort of of, of, of you know, media uh, education, you know, I've, I've, I've always, you know, I think we've all been challenged by um, those... Uh, sort of short quips when people say, oh, well, media, you know, and they, you know, you say you're talking about media literacy and there's immediately sort of a, a political, you know, tinge to it. Right. And, and, and it's a barrier. Um, it, it, and, and that's even, you know, irrespective, that's even when we focus largely in the cognitive domain. Right. So as we sort of take this turn and I, um, as the field takes this turn, particularly as practitioners and, and educators, how do we do that in this environment where, you know, uh, where there's you know critiques of things like socio social emotional learning and and you know and 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 there's increasing uh, uh, scrutiny of of anything that that might um, uh, uh, smell of sort of partisanship when everything, of course, these days sort of you know uh, uh, seems that way. So how do we you know as you as you move into the colleges and as you move into you know to to you know youth and in other areas you know in this in the uh across the lifespan how, um how do you think you, how do you think that you can be successful or how, how do you think practitioners can be successful in that turn yeah well, it's a great question one of the things that we're discovering is this idea of um listening without trying to persuade you know, normally when we're engaged in a conversation, I'm listening and I'm I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about how can I get you to believe what I believe? How can I get you to think what I think? But 
there's a whole different style of listening when I take that goal of persuasion off the table when I'm really just listening to understand. And this goes back to the heart of the concept that Julie Quiro calls inquiry, right? When you're asking questions to understand. So that means we, that means we in, in a way, uh, try to avoid blame and shame strategies where we accuse the other group of being, you know, the heart of darkness, right? <laughs> where we where we avoid language that polarizes. It also means listening with genuine curiosity and respect, which is hard. We have had folks in our courageous conversations that are very uh, anti-trans. Uh, they don't want any reference to uh, gender identity is plural in schools. And when we listen with uh, genuine curiosity, what we have to do is we have to suppress our natural emotional reaction, which is often anger. And we have to recognize that we don't have to agree with people to listen to them and to try to understand where they're coming from. So I actually feel that this initiative is actually aiming to be an antidote to the crisis of polari of political polarization in this country. And I'm not sure it's it's not going to cure cancer, right? This is not the only solution. But the way we move beyond the toxic polarization that we're now experiencing, it has to include improving people's listening skills and 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 the and the ability for people to appreciate other points of view without having to agree with them. And that goes back to the Enlightenment, Adam, and you know all about that better than anyone, right? As a civics uh, educator, right? It is the Enlightenment promise that we're hinging this whole project on. You know, it, it's interesting. Sometimes I'll talk to people about, you know, um, you know the, those those core sort of Enlightenment ideas, and then we talk about, you know, certainly in 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 sort of more news and journalism sort of space, we often talk about the the marketplace of ideas, and and I ask these questions of, you know rhetorical and uh, you know can the marketplace of ideas exist within a culture of information abundance right which is a question and I I think it can but then I, I come to sort of the the idea of can it exist in that in that context but when we have low trust in all um, institutions of society and the only trust that that you know we still have is the interpersonal trust and that and that's fractured right it's 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 you know it's it's those who are closest to us right um and so i i'm actually kind of you know i'm kind of i'm kind of curious what what your thoughts are there you know i'm really fascinated at the epistemological shift that's happening as we have lowered trust in institutions in experts in people with titles and degrees and we have increasing trust in influencers, charismatic in charismatic uh, personalities who seem very, very similar to us. Maybe they're even deeply flawed, right? but their similarity to us makes them appealing. And I feel like in a way it's this epistemological shift has a lot of different causes, right? But we actually have to recognize that it's a, it's a, it's a it's a strategy for um, dealing with this hyperabundance and with dealing with the 
power, the damage that corruption has done to institutional trust, right? So there's a reason why people don't trust news organizations. There's a reason why people don't trust government. It's not like these this distrust came, or there's a reason why people don't trust medical authority, right? So the distrust in institutions, that, that lowering of trust has been filled by charismatic authorities, people with high authenticity, and that creates the opportunity to be exploited by demagogues. And so a big part of my uh, focus on the Mind Over Media, my book about propaganda education, was recognize that uh, when you can't trust institutions, you naturally turn to trust charismatic individuals, but demagogues um, will use very identifiable strategies that you are very vulnerable to. And so that guarding against the, the dangers of that epistemological shift now maybe it will some someday go back and restoring trust in institutions is the goal that I have. But you can't restore trust in institutions by just saying trust the New York Times, right? <laughs> it has to happen through action. Yeah, and well, and, and to your point, you know that also gives a pass to those institutions and in, in the errors that they've made, you know, um, in in the past. You know, it it, it uh, so yeah, I think that's that's a great point. You know. Uh, I want to sort of shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, another project that, that you've done recently um, is, you know, looking at media literacy across the lifespan, across, you know, you, you had a, a wonderful, um, a wonderful series this year. All the speakers were great. There, there was one who was a little questionable, right? You know, um, uh, you know, I'm talking about myself, of course. Yes. Uh, anyway, um, uh, but, 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 but anyway, um, you know, I, I'm curious if, you know, when people talk about media literacy, they talk about civic literacy or civic education, or you know any of these terms. We often think about, um, you know, there's an antidote, and we'll sort of inject. You know, it's they think about it sort of a, you know, uh, 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 you know the the hypodermic needle, you know, approach. You know, we'll we'll inject that, and and you know you'll be prepared for it, like education. You know, the rest of the you know uh, your life, and and I think that a lot of the discussion that we've had in in those sessions is that you know the that that's not the case, right? It's not just something for high school students or that civics class in middle school that, you know, we, we add there, you know, it's, it's, it's important across the lifespan. And, and a lot of, I think, conversations we started to have was, was also about the intergenerational um, conversations around media, um, you know, where, where someone's frame for how they think about media is, is different because media has changed so much uh, in, 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 you know, a relatively short amount of time, you know, over the last, you know, just in the lifespan of the people who are alive today, look at sort of the technolo technological and, and cultural and, and economic changes that have happened within sort of media frames. So I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about why, why that sort of intergenerational, uh, you know, across the generation approach is, is so important and, and, and where you think sort of we can go as, um, uh, as a field uh, and, and sort of continuing that work. Wow. Oh, such a great question. And thank you for asking. Um, you know, I got kind of um, annoyed, I guess might be the right way to put it. I got annoyed as the fake news crisis brought us all kinds of attention, right? Everybody was talking about media literacy as, like you said, the solution, right? Just give people a dose of media literacy and voila, you know, the fake news crisis will go away. I, 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 I was getting really annoyed I was getting annoyed with the folks who positioned fact-checking as the solution. 
everybody just be a fact checker and then voila, it'll solve itself. Uh, I, I got annoyed at the labels. Oh, this is misinformation. That is disinformation. This is malinformation. That was like, well, naming it, giving it a label. Right? <laughs> How far did that go? Right? Uh, and it struck me that... Uh, uh- I always, <laughs> I, I always found that interesting too because I have a PhD in journalism, or I should know a, a little bit about you know how to fact check, and uh, you, you would think, and and I don't have more time in my day to do right. that, uh, and and like I don't you know oh well that's that's this kind of this you know that's just you know uh, even for somebody who who supposedly has you know uh, cognitive or, or, or time resources or or, or you know capital to be able to do those things. And mo- many people don't, and we have more and more information. So it seems like it's an institutional problem, but we're trying to put it on the individuals. I, I, I experienced, not to cut you off, I experienced the same annoyance at a high level as well. So. It was really annoying. And I found myself thinking about how, you know, growing up in the age of Woodward and Bernstein uh, and wanting to believe in the power of the press as the fourth estate to be a check on bal- a check and balance on power, generationally, I was primed to trust news media and to believe in journalism as serving a, a vital function for society. But what I noticed in my teaching is that my students didn't have any of those illusions, right? They didn't have any of that understanding. That ideology and that set of values didn't map onto their lived experience with what was always a um, a media system that put profit over any other value, right? And that monetized, you know, every uh, every every part of human attention um, in ways that are really they they didn't have high expectations for journalism, and so that led me to think about how much more effective we would be as educators if we were sensitive to the developmental paradigms that we are all holding just by the nature of the, our date of birth, right? And so that made me think about, rather than think about media literacy as like a set of uh, measurable skills like Piaget or, you know, other uh, cognitive scientists have imagined, you know, first you have to do this and then you have to do this. Rather than think about media literacy as a set of milestones that you advance as you grow older, it struck me that it was really there was really an opportunity to think about intergenerational dialogues as a way to build appreciation for our lived experience with media because, like you said, so much has changed. Um, and, and even between parents and children, there's a vast gulf of lived experience that's, that separates them. Why can't we leverage that those distinct lived experiences to increase people's curiosity about media and make them interested in learning more? And one of the favorite assignments I do in it, when I teach an intro to mass, uh, mass comic courses is when we uh, are studying certain, like the television, when we start to study some of the history of television, I have students go out and interview uh, someone who's at least, you know, 70, 75 years old, you, you know, the, the age changes as the uh, go, time goes on. And I asked them, you know, have, you know, t- have, have a conversation about the role of television when they were young and how that's changed and what they do now. And it's eye-opening to so many students because they, you know, 
they're getting out of their own reality uh and and and, and the own you know their own uh um notions about about television in, in media more generally yeah and when we think about trying to help people understand the uh, regulatory frameworks that we're now faced with, how should we regulate media? Then we have to keep in mind that, you know, lawmakers are all old people thinking about media with, from their lived experience. That's going to be different um, than what younger people think about in terms of their expectations. I do think the other thing that's really cool about the developmental or the intergenerational approach is this idea that um, media literacy is not a fixed quantity it's sort of like a mindset it's a we're always becoming media literate right and it's not that we arrive at a destination it's that um we are we are always becoming and that that's a very cool idea that i hope to think more deeply about in the future it'll have impacts for how we researchers measure whatever the skill sets or competencies are, that's for sure. So I have to add, thinking about the lifespan and people's frameworks for understanding media, I was thinking about when Orrin Hatch famously asked Mark Zuckerberg how how Facebook makes money. And Zuckerberg said, well, we, we sell ads, you know. Um, uh, so at any rate, um, so changing over to higher ed for, for, for just one second, I, I kind of want to focus on 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 that. You you were talking earlier about the decline of trust in uh, institutions, and one of those institutions that people are trusting less and less these days are universities and colleges. Um, and higher ed, it seems, is kind of under fire from from everyone. And yet, at the same time, I think to most people, it would seem like higher education would be a common sense place for a lot of this work that we're talking about to be happening. And of course it is, right? But but what I'm curious from your perspective, Renee, where do you think higher education has succeeded in stemming the tide of misinformation or making people more literate? Where has it failed in terms of, of, of media literacy education? Oh, and I'm gonna be on the record when I when I say what I, I'm, this is not a private conversation, right? So how bold should I be, Paul? <laughs> Well, all, all seven, all seventeen of our listeners are are dying to hear uh, what you have to say. Oh man! Oh man! Oh man! Oh man! What I appreciate about that question, why that question is so damn smart and complicated to answer, is that you know the business model of higher education is broken, right? And so we kind of think structurally, like it's got all kinds of problems because. Um, um, the fact that it's, it, there's no more, that there, the, there's not enough money to do it right. Right. And so we are doing all kinds of things just to, you know, survive, right. At least at my poor state university underfunded, I don't know about yours, right? <laughs> but, uh, so it's a challenge. I think, um, I've always done battle with the, um, academic uh, silos, the fiefdoms, the departmental structures, and the disciplinary structures that wall off certain kinds of questions for certain kinds of uh, uh, knowledge communities. I, I, I like Henry Jenkins. Uh, we once had a conversation and we agreed we were both undisciplined, right, in our refusal to, you know, it, it, it stay within the boundaries of the 
knowledge community. Um, and there are consequences for that. There, there's reasons why those boundaries exist. And there's reason why the reward systems are tied with staying inside those silos. Uh, but I never um, wanted to stay in just one silo because it seemed like all the interesting questions were at the intersection. In my case, the, in the interesting research questions are at the intersection of communication, media studies, and education, right? And colleagues always said, listen, Renee, we don't mind if, if you do interdisciplinary work, um, but you have to partner up law, medicine, philosophy, but not, not education. Recognizing in a, in a very awful way the academic hierarchies that exist in the higher education which also can discourage collaboration. Um, I think right now I'm starting to see the computer science faculty become more receptive and interested in exploring science and technology and society, ethics of technology, um, ethical responsibilities of media creators. This is a good thing. So that's a bright spot. And I'm hoping over the next 10 years, we'll see more of that from the computer science faculty. Um, definitely starting to see in the business school an appreciation for entrepreneurship and the responsibilities of being a, a professional communicator. That's kind of cool because we'd always frame that in communication in relation to the mass media industries. But the business community, the business school recognizes everyone, every entrepreneur is a you know, communicator, uh, and they need to think about their social responsibility. Um, I think my fear, I guess, to be frank with you, is, um, you know, I was, I my undergraduate background is in English literature, and uh, I have a deeply humanistic orientation to thinking about teaching and learning in higher education, and I worry about uh, the decreasing number of students who are choosing that those fields. Um, in a way, I once, I, I once a long time ago thought that media literacy could be the near humanities education because of the way it asked big, complicated questions about what bonds, what, what connects us in culture, right? And because it explores art and because it explores um, technologies, I thought, oh, it is kind of the new humanities. Um, but I don't know. I think institutions that are under siege financially uh, don't have much appetite for innovation um, because they can't really afford the risk. So I'm not super optimistic as a result. I'd love to start a new university. Wouldn't that be fun? We're on board. The notion of undisciplined. I love that because <laughs> I think uh, I feel that way uh, often. Uh, and I know Paul, Paul does uh, uh, as well. And, and I think you're right. You know, the, the most interesting questions exist at that, at that, at, at the intersection, but the incentive structures, um, generally speaking, are such that, that they, they discourage, they they highly disincentivize um, that that kind of work. You know, I, I think it's changing because, well, I hope it's changing because of the financial pressures. But I think we're at that sort of 
challenge, right? Is that while well, uh, on one hand, there's the recognition that 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 interdisciplinary that the the most I think successful universities are going to be the ones that recognize in this environment we have to to adapt around uh, uh, away from traditional disciplines and more into sort of an interdisciplinary space that addresses problems, right? That, that, we, that we should organize ourselves around social problems. And, and we can still have people who are sociologists and psychologists and, and, you know, and English literature professors, but they can work together to, to address problems. Right. But I think you're right. I mean, I'm, I, I'm hopeful, but at the same time, um, worried that, that, that the institutions that are most in need of that change aren't going to do it because they can't afford to, or, or they don't think that they can afford to. But, but I mean, I would argue, and Paul and I argue, being faculty at regional universities that have seen substantial coverage uh, um, of re regional campuses that have seen substantial enrollment loss over the last decade, that we have no choice but to do this, and we'll be, and hopefully, we'll be be better for it in the end. But yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting challenge to be sure. It's one of the things that makes your digital digital gardeners project so interesting to me because with relatively little money and quite a lot of collaboration and um, sort of uh, sweat equity, you have managed to create a knowledge community that, uh, at least from the way it looks to me, seems really quite generative for everybody who's participating in it and all of your students. So, uh, so innovation can occur, um, but I guess it, it, it is interesting how we need each other, right? We can't do it alone, right? We, we, we need to be fertilized by, you know, the whole community's um, different curiosities and different senses of possibility. Well, um, uh, first of all, uh, I, I, I appreciate that. And, 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 and we, we try to be explicitly interdisciplinary, explicitly intercampus, explicitly, um, you know, across ranks, um, you know, it, 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 almost radically inclusive, um, you know, for the purposes of, of, of recognizing that you have to, 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 to do so, um, to really create dynamic and new, new things, right. Bring different perspectives. So you, you had used a word, um, uh, not in the context that, um, that I'm going to use it in my question, but it's a good segue. Um, so you said, you know, uh, you, you use the word generative and not, not meaning in the sort of frame that would ask the question, but certainly, uh, you know, uh, in the last few months, especially, uh, you know, the, we've seen the sort of revolution in, in, in generative AI. So yeah, uh, poor transition, but transition nonetheless. <laughs> and, um, anyway, and, and, um, you know, a lot of my, you know, as you know, you know, a lot of, a lot of my background and and where I sort of approach media literacy is sort of a, from from a you know a sociological sort of perspective, right? We have to you, you got to kind of know know how the sausage is made, right? Um, and uh, and and you have to be able to sort of de you know uh, uh, um, deconstruct something, right? A big part of some elements of media literacy, you know, is that you know we often teach construction because it's a good way to to emphasize um, uh, what one needs to do to deconstruct. But, you know, we're seeing the advances in generative artificial intelligence and, 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 other, um, and other technologies that, that make that extremely difficult, almost sort of mind-numbingly complex. 
Um, and you know, I mean, I have fun playing with ChatGPT and 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 Dolly and all of those. I'm sure you do as well. But at the same time, like it it intrigues me and worries the heck out of me all at the same time. I mean, I created a deep fake of a colleague of ours in five minutes. So, um, I mean, it wasn't great, but I mean, if I had 10 minutes, I mean, it would, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, wait a couple of months, I'll probably be able to create an even better one. Right. So, so I guess my question for you is, is, you know, your, what are your thoughts on sort of this revolution? I mean, um, uh, I mean, not necessarily, you know, should we be afraid or should we celebrate? Cause it's kind of both, but, but I mean, how do you think this technology will challenge us in, in that sort of, especially that sort of focus uh, on deconstruction, how will it challenge us, us to really be able to even engage in the, in the process of, of, of deconstructing uh, media? Such a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Um, I, I think about the history of technology and how at the point at which a new technology is introduced, it's always, um, it's always seen as quite magical, something that we can't really fully understand. Think about the telephone, right? Oh my gosh, imagine that. You could hear a voice of a faraway person with just, you know, this device with the wires. It's, it's amazing, right? And the idea that right now this technology feels magical in a scary way, that actually is quite it when we look historically we recognize that that always is how it starts it always starts with something disruptive that feels magical unknown and scary and that we move through those cycles of protection and empowerment protection and empowerment where we first have to we first worry about what it's going to take away and then we start to see what opportunities are there for it i have a lot of faith in our ability to figure out how to make skillful use of this tool and how to understand it better. Uh, I I don't think that's going to happen all at once, and it's probably not going to happen fast enough, right, for you, right, who wants to figure that all out right now. But I feel like um, five years from now, we will. it'll be like, Think about how scared we were. Um, you were too young to remember this, I think, even. But in 1985, there was a New York Times photojournalist, Fred Ritchie, who wrote a great book about his fear about what Photoshop would do to the field of photojournalism. Photoshop would destroy photojournalism, he argued, in 1985, because he was so fearful that just anyone being able to edit a photo would lead to the collapse of the entire field. And I feel like a lot of fear is a kind of natural response to magic. We don't understand something and it seems magical. Um, but I feel like if we're patient um, and if um, the folks who create these technologies are transparent about what they don't know, because that's the other thing that's interesting. They don't even necessarily understand it. Right. So I feel like that transparency is going to be very helpful to us as we figure a way forward. Uh, but we're going to have to think about this in the long arc of his history. It's not going to be a problem. We're going to wrestle to the floor by Christmas. Well, Renee, thank you so much 
for 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 the, for the conversation uh, and 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 spending some some time on this. I think that that um, it's a it's sort of a good point to sort of start to to wrap up. I want to ask you, are, you know, are there any other sort of you know thoughts that you want to share? Anything anything perhaps that we didn't ask that we'd like to to share with our as Paul said, seventeen listeners. I think it'll be far more after this interview. Uh, to be to be fair, I actually really enjoyed the conversation, and I appreciate the. Uh the journey that we went on together. I think um, part of my, why people are like, where did you get, what, you know, what was the optimism drug that leaves you feeling optimistic at a time when things are so disastrous and terrible and difficult. And I, I feel like conversations like this leave me feeling very optimistic because, um, you know, alone we can do so little, but, you know, together we can do, so much more and this sense of creating communities right and cultivating them and 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 respecting that as lifelong learners we need each other um that that's that is a that is an antidote to the sense of alienation and um anxiety that can really be paralyzing for productive uh creative work so you guys coming together to create this podcast is an example of that way of, you know, uh, recognizing the power, uh, the power of two, as we say at the Summer Institute of Digital Literacy. So thanks for the opportunity to uh, talk to both of you today. And I really enjoyed the conversation. Oh, you bet. Thank you. And as we lock out, let me just kind of remind folks two websites that you want to check out to see more of what Renee is up to. Uh, the first is mediaeducationlab.com. And the second one is courageousri.com. And, and there's lots of resources there, lots of information, readings and handouts, and uh, you can register for some of the upcoming events. And I would strongly encourage you to do so. Yes, and uh, just remember, you can get uh, the Digital Gardening Podcast, whatever you get your podcast. I really enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, you guys. Bye, Adam. Bye, Paul.